Greetings. Jedi Master Yoda this is, or at least his voice. It's Tom Kane uh, here at the Great Philadelphia Comic Con, and you're listening to An Elegant Weapon. Listen, you will. Forcing it, I have. Yes. An Elegant Weapon is brought to you by Nemesis Studios. An elegant weapon for the more civilized age. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to An Elegant Weapon, episode 196. My name is J.M. Clark, Ross Jedi, J. the Jedi Ross. It is so good to be here with you again in the L5J studios. I might sound a little loopy, kids. That's because I'm feeling a little bit so. Had a horrible night last night. Got a really bad toothache. Uh, I think I might have some sort of infection in there. Uh, I was unable to locate any kind of 24-hour emergency uh, emergency dental situation, so I had to straight up go to the hospital and get a shot and get some groovy pain meds, which I have been partaking of. Uh, they hooked me up with some uh, Ketorolac. If you've never had Ketorolac, it's uh, it's good times, groovy indeed. Anyways, back to the great Philadelphia Comic-Con this week, kids. I bring to you another fine conversation from the show. This week's conversation is from a panel entitled, It's a Trap! And, of course, it was with Mr. Admiral Akbar himself, uh, Mr. Tim Rose. Tim Rose is responsible for the animatronic puppetry of Admiral Akbar, as well as many, many other characters and creatures in the Star Wars universe as well. Uh, he worked on the Dark Crystal, Skeksis, and stuff. He also worked on the Great Muppet Caper, trying to make Muppets fly in hot air balloons and such. Uh, he's worked for Lucas, he's worked for Henson, and he's got some incredible stories uh, we were very honored to hear them. I apologize because they're not the easiest uh, ones in the world to hear. Unfortunately, right next door to our panel room was happening the All That panel with Kel Mitchell of All That, Keenan and Kel, Good Burger. So things got a little rambunctious over there, especially with the panel being hosted by our own Jimmy McKnight of the Ninja Starship podcast. So unfortunately, you can hear a little bit of microphone muffling going on from the con next door. It's nothing that completely destroys our podcast. Uh, you know me, I wouldn't put out uh, a podcast. It was absolutely horrible, but I think this one stands up enough just because of the conversation we had. So it's not the clearest, uh, it's not the crispest, uh, but if you pay attention to the actual conversation, it is one of the coolest. Uh, we talk about Howard the Duck, the Dark Crystal, uh, Star Wars, and more. Uh, my conversation, ladies and gentlemen, with Mr. Tim Rose. Are you having a good con? Are you enjoying the weekend? Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Tim Rose. Hello. Hi. The panel being entitled It's a Trap due to his work as Admiral Akbar. Uh, I'm sure you have questions, which we're going to get into. But I'm a huge fan, so I've got the microphone. So my question is the first one. There you go. Um, if you don't mind, uh, we'll pick up. We were having a little conversation yesterday about the Dark Crystal. 
Oh, yes. yes. Everybody familiar with the dark crystal? There you go. Uh, the most terrifying yet exciting movie I watched as a child. And we were just talking about what it took to build this monumental task. Quite a groundbreaking film in a way. And you were just going into the details and the techniques of the puppetry for that show. So maybe give us a bit of info on that. That'd be great. Well, The Dark Crystal was a film that Jim dreamt about for years and years. And probably one of the most unusual things about it at that time was that there had never actually been a movie without people in it before. This was going to be entirely puppets or animatronics, depending on what you want to call them. And so Jim was very nervous that he wanted to get it right. And the movie had a four-year pre-production. Even uh, the new Star Wars movie only had about seven months pre-production. So four years to get things right was a long time. But what that allowed us to do was to build the characters for the movie, try them out on camera, look at them and go, well, that's good, but that isn't so good, and have a second go and sometimes a third go to build them. So I think one of the reasons the film has lasted as long as it has was because we got given that much time to make sure everything was just the way it should be before we finally committed it to film. Did it involve new techniques? Did you have to come up with a lot of new ways to do things since it was such a new idea? Well, certainly at that time, um, animatronics as such did not exist. In fact, <laughs> I, I think that I can hold the claim to be, um, I, I live in the UK, and I, I can hold the claim to be Britain's oldest animatronics designer because the producer on Dark Crystal said that when Jim was trying to get his American guys over to England, they didn't want to give us work permits because there was a lot of the English guys in the film business who weren't working at the time. So this British producer said, well, if you call your New York guys animatronics designers, then they won't displace any British guys because there are no animatronics designers. There weren't any anywhere in the world. So we actually, we made the name up just to get work permits and the name is stuck and everybody just sort of takes animatronics for granted now. Really? It's the name you guys just made man. that up for that? We made it up. That's an amazing <laughs> story. Well, shall we just uh, do a little bit and start about your beginnings in the industry and then maybe we can get uh, some of you guys to ask some questions. So how did it all start for you? How did you get involved in puppetry and animatronics? I was trying to work out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I, my dad did radio-controlled airplanes, so he had a workshop down in the cellar. And I used to uh, play in the cellar in his workshop, and I made little models of the monitor in the Mary Mac and reenacted the full battle sequences and all that. So I was always making things as a kid, really enjoying building things. And when I started the university, I was originally thinking I would be a graphics artist. And while I was there, I got involved with the theater and found that I actually liked acting as well. And eventually I kind of put it all together, which was with the puppets, where I could still build things, I could write scripts, I could do performances. And I basically didn't need to decide what I wanted to be when I grew up, because I could do everything I enjoyed as a kid, as a grown-up. 
So <laughs> it's amazing. been that way ever since. So where do you meet Mr. Henson? Ah, I was doing theater lighting in New York City, uh, working for a, a lighting rental company, and I heard through friends of mine, well, actually, I had tried previously to get a job with the Muppets. I, I knew where their offices were over on Fifth Avenue, and I had a uh, bag puppet booth I used to do at uh, fairgrounds and shopping malls and things, and being shy, I took the train down to New York City. It was like a two and a half hour train ride with my puppet booth, and I put it on out in the street and then walked inside of Henson's and had my dragon hand them the CV. And fortunately, they didn't remember that that was me when I went for the job the second time. <laughs> I didn't get the job that time. With all that, and they didn't give it to you. They didn't That's give it to But the second time, I just went as myself and... Um, did the audition, and that's when I got a job working with Klaus Fazakis. That's amazing. And that must have been incredible, getting to work with those guys and that company. Well, it was because of my dad. Faz was just starting. He, he was really the father of animatronics. Okay. And he had gotten Kermit to ride on a bicycle, and everybody was talking about how Kermit rode on a bicycle, and we just developed it from there. We started using servos and making robots of all the Muppet characters. So you worked on the on the Kermit riding the bike? No, no, okay. I didn't, okay. do, I didn't okay. do that one, but um, I did the Great Muppet Caper where we had um, Kermit and Fozzie and Gonzo flying in a hot air balloon. Right, 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 right. And the, the funny story about that one, <laughs> it was a radio-controlled hot air balloon, and it had three radio-controlled characters in it, and we had two helicopters, the one had a big kitchen chair hanging underneath it, and the cameraman sat in this kitchen chair, and he filmed the hot air balloon flying out over the desert in um, Arizona, it was. And the second one had Jim and Frank and Dave Goals, and they had the radio controls and the little puppet Waldos we made, and they were puppeteering the robot Kermit, Fozzie, and Gonzo. And we heard Jim saying over the walkie-talkies, you've got to get in closer. I've paid all this money for them, and I can't see their mouths moving. And the helicopter pilot said, I don't think that's a good idea, sir. And he says, you've got to get closer. We're just not close enough yet. So the helicopter pilot flew in closer. The prop wash from the helicopter proceeded to knock all the air out of the hot air balloon, and it crashed from 400 feet up into the desert. So Jim's helicopter landed, and he jumped out, and he said, how long do you think you can take to fix that? <laughs> and we, we spent all night in a hotel room rebending shafts and uh, right, right, right. <laughs> replacing servos, and we got it ready to go by 8 o'clock the next morning, so he was able to finally film it for the movie. So. Very nice. Um, you have quite an extensive career as far as different things you've gotten to work on, but... We all here are here at a panel called It's a Trap. So, <laughs> Star Wars, where does that begin for you? Um, well, Jim and George were actually quite good friends. They, um, they, oh, yeah. they were competition in a way, but they weren't nasty about it. You know, they would always come and hang out. Because both sets of films were both being done at EMI Studios, so they would always pop next door to see what the other guy was up to, see if right, he'd right. come up with anything that they hadn't thought of yet. 
and I ended up um, basically being traded back and forth okay. across between the two. Like a utility guy, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the go-anywhere fix-it man, that was me. Right. <laughs> so when you get involved in the actual puppetry and stuff, how early in the process are you involved? Do they design the character before you're assigned to puppet it? Are you involved with the whole procedure? Or does one day you show up to work and they're like, you've got this fish head puppet, and they're like, make it move? You know? Like, well, with Akbar, I had just finished, I was um, fired by Rick Baker off of a movie called Greystone because oh. I was trying to talk them into making the uh, close-up gorilla in that a puppet. And he didn't like the idea. And when I went to work on Jedi, I went to Phil Tippett and I said, well, what they would do at the time was they'd have a full body suit for establishing shots. And then the close-up character, they would get a big table and they would mount the head on the table and put 50 cables out of it and make everything in the face move. And so I picked up the close-up and I showed Phil that if I held it up as a puppet, instead of mounting it on the table. You got a lot of movement before you even started putting the cables in. And Phil really liked the idea, and he said, go for it. And um, so uh, Akbar was actually a full body suit for establishing shots, and there was a puppet version where I was inside the chest of the character with a monitor, and I puppeteered his mouth Muppet style. And that was the character that says most of the lines in the movie was actually a hand puppet. Wow. Do you know so. if they used any of the same techniques for the new Akbar and The Force Awakens? Did they? Oh, I know a lot about that. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you'll share with us. Well, no. Now the, um, the the animatronic technology has all moved on, and we're able to do it all in the one suit. So with the with the new Akbar, I had about twenty eight. 30 servos in, in the head with me. So if you imagine um, putting your head into a cage with 38 budgies and they're all cheeping away at the same time, you can kind of imagine what it's like being inside with all these servos. Right, right. right. You have to have earphones in both ears just so you can hear what anybody's trying to say to you in there. So. Right. So uh, way back then, you know, you're, you're all making these groundbreaking Star Wars movies. However many years later, you get a chance to dip in again, right, and mm. Akbar is around. What was the sense when you arrived to work on The Force Awakens as far as, because there must have been people who, like the younger workers on the movie, must have got a little fanboyish and giddy when they met all of you guys working on the old ones. Was there a lot of that, or did that just go away quickly and everybody got to work sort of thing? Uh, no, The Force Awakens had a... A very high geekdom level. <laughs> it was a very strange thing because um, a lot of the uh, stormtroopers and rebel extras and all that sort of thing were, were fairly young themselves. They were in their early 20s. And um, when, you, when you got one of us, the heritage characters, we were all being called the heritage characters, and, of course, when we would come on set for the first time, they'd all go, that's him! Come on, Akbar's come on set! You know, and all that. So it, it was kind of fun um, on that side of things. 
We did it all. <laughs> Ironically, I've, I've never worked on a film where we did so much signing. <laughs> all the wardrobe people seemed to all have the new book that they'd done, which had all their costumes in it, but we all had to sign, you know, what we'd done in, in the books for the costumes. And it was a funny, funny sort of thing where we're all making a movie, but all like at a convention at the same time or something like that. Right, know, so. right. Do they specifically bring back the people who worked on the heritage characters to work on those heritage characters? Or do they like, okay, you just generally worked on Star Wars and we'd like to have you back? Or was it more like, we need Akbar, call Tim Rose? Like, Well, yeah, when I, I was doing um, conventions before I was asked to work on Episode 7, and the fans would ask, oh, you know, if Akbar is back, are you going to do it? And I just laughed and I went, "Oh, if Akbar is back, it's going to be some kid. They won't, they won't bother to get me in. I'm far too old to be in a full body suit costume." And then I got an email while I was in Australia, and um, it, it was my friend Brian who did BB-8 on the movie, and he said, uh, "Tim, we need to talk to you, but you have to sign this non-disclosure agreement before we can say anything." I said, "Oh, don't be ridiculous. No, I can't say anything." So I had to wait until I got back to England where they said that they did actually want me to come back in and do it. So I ran out to my workshop and pulled the bicycle down off the wall and <laughs> madly began cycling away and trying to do things because I, I was um, quite terrified that if I got back into a full body suit I might not survive the experience. But uh, <laughs> I managed to, I'm, I'm still here so I managed to survive the... <laughs> right. The rigors. <laughs> well, just before uh, we were in the panel for Deep Roy next door, and mm. he was talking about being Drew B. McCool and stuff, mm. it, it must have been a very team-oriented effort to make all these characters come alive. Like, how many people are involved? Like, is it just you? When, when it's the Akbar suit that you're having to puppet, is it just you, or is there anyone else involved? Like, well... No, there's actually... Um, like, you know how, like, Jabba took, like, six to nine people? There were six to nine. Sort of thing, yeah. um, with the original Akbar, the full-body suit was cable-controlled. So when I was in the suit and doing the dialogue, it was actually Mike Quinn, who does Nine Numb. He was laying on the floor, and he did the cable controls for Akbar. And when I was doing the hand puppet, then he was on to eye blinks and doing the other arm and things like that. And then when he did Nine Numb... I was doing his eye blinks for him, and uh, Sice Noodles, we did that one together as oh, well. Oh, cool, cool. So, having worked with Muppets, I mean, with a lot of those characters could take up to six people to bring them alive, so right. we were quite used to working as a, an ensemble. And it's one of the things that I do love about the animatronic characters is it, it isn't just one actor, it takes sometimes up to six people to bring them alive. And when you start off, you have to do it by the numbers. You know, when I say this, you blink the eye there, you make the eyebrows raise, you do that. But it reaches a point where the character does take on a life of its own, and all of us know exactly what that character would do at any given moment. And at that point, you can start ad-libbing in between takes and right. keep the character alive all the time. And that, that's when they get really exciting, is when you're right in the room with them, and they are alive. Right, right. That's something yeah. that CG 
we'll never do that. <laughs> Which was the brilliant move they made in making this movie. It's, it's, it's such a beautiful marriage of the CGI and the practical effects. Mm-hmm. And there must have been a few moments when you and colleagues would be like, can you believe we're back doing this 30, 40 years later? Like, <laughs> did you have a few of those moments? Well, it was about um, 12 years ago. I was working at Henson's Creature Shop in London, and we all went out to see Lord of the Rings. And when Gollum came on, I just turned to the younger guys and I says, well, you guys are young enough to retrain, but I'm in big trouble. (laughs) But it turned out that I was overly pessimistic. Uh, There there certainly, when CG started, we were not getting much work at all, but now we're getting more and more work as time goes on. So certainly with the Star Wars movie. Well, yeah, I think they've realized now that the marriage between the two is a much better effect than just one or the other, sort of. Like, making these elaborate costumes, but then just cleaning them up digitally, you know, making yeah. them work a little better. It's, it's a be- uh, Benicio Del Toro. Sorry, not Benicio Del Toro. Uh, Guillermo, Guillermo Del Toro, you know, Hellboy and such. Mm-hmm. I thought that was... He kind of started that, I felt. Because a lot of Hellboy was a lot of practical costumes colored up with digital. So, you know, it's an amazing thing. Does anybody have any questions? We do have a microphone here. Let me make sure it's turned on. Hello, hello. Thank you very much for being here today. I really appreciate it. My question is, how does it feel to know that you contributed to a character that only has, like, less than a dozen lines out of two movies, but somehow it's become so, so popular with all Star Wars fans. I'm, I'm very happy and humble. What I like, the, the fans are always so practical about these things. I was, um, I was feeling sorry for myself because when you do these things, you do much more than the public ever gets to see. And I, I actually shot a couple of scenes for episode seven, which didn't make it to the final movie. And I was bemoaning the fact that one of the scenes I liked the best didn't make it in there. And I said, yeah, you know, I only ended up with two lines. And they turned around and said, well, you had two more lines than Mark Hamill did. And I went, hey, yeah, I had, <laughs> I had two more lines than Mark Hamill. So it's like, thank you, fans, for <laughs> keeping, me, keeping me on the straight and narrow. I certainly never knew that uh, Akbar would have the, the life that he's had, but I, I can only be happy for that. So. Well, although the the character that I got the credit for was a treasure Skeksy, uh, my friend Brian, he also did Barkley the dog on Sesame Street, and he had to go back to work on Sesame Street while we were still filming. So I got to take over his Gartham and help smash through the Poddling Village. And he did one of the mystics, so I was able to be a mystic as well. And of course, everybody, including the secretary from the production department, came down to do a Poddling because there were so many of those. <laughs> Anybody who could hold their hand over their head got to be a Poddling on the movie. So we, it was a great movie where we got to do a lot of it. very fun things. Hello, sir. Okay. Um, 
Can you tell us how they uh, perfected the voice of Avalanche Bar? Do you have any uh, participation in that? Or, and if you could, could you demonstrate you know, what his voice was like? Or if you had any participation in that? Well, I didn't do the final voice for Avalanche Bar. I don't know if everybody knows, but Derek Bowers fell. He, he passed away on the third very, April. Very recently. This yes, year. Very recently. And that's one of the funny things with these, because we don't do it all ourselves. We do it as an ensemble. And um, I, I was very happy with that. When you're, when you're doing the animatronic characters, all you can do on set is a guide track. With Salacious Crumb, I'm buried under the set with my arms through the floor. So, of course, your voice is going to come out sounding like that. And with Akbar, I was playing him as an admiral who is a man in his 50s I was 24 years old at the time so I was more than happy to let a 50 year old man do the voice for me so that he would have the proper age and gravity that he needed the biggest problem with that was that the um, news all put up that Admiral Akbar had died and when I came back to work on Monday morning, everybody just sort of stared at me and went, we heard you died. <laughs> it's like, well, a piece of me has, but the, the uh, rumors of my death have been exaggerated. So. I'm not sure if you've seen, there's a recent uh, video interview with him. It was put on YouTube where he was asked to say, it's a trap in like, Ten different ways, like scared and sad. And he was like, "Oh, it's a trap! It's a trap!" And he did like, "Well, he's one. He was so wonderful." But, yeah, yeah, he was a great guy. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful man. Working the animatronics. How uncomfortable, like physically, could it be? Like, like you like a tight spot or something? Like, what's it? I don't know if you guys all heard that. He's, uh, how physically uncomfortable can it, be do, can it be performing some of these characters? Well, we used to always joke around that unless you were uncomfortable, you probably weren't doing the job right. <laughs> Makes sense, right? right. I, certainly, uh, with all the early stuff, we had to do everything in camera. There weren't any computers to paint anything out. So, in an effort to get his much of the puppet in the shot as possible. You had to go into some very strange positions to keep your head out of shot while the puppet in the shot. And um, Jim, very kindly, he would always hire uh, full-time osteopaths. And when we weren't on set, we were usually being put back together for the next shot. So <laughs> it's very, very physically demanding to do. Excellent, thank you. That's nice and close there. Can you talk a little bit about your work on Howard the Duck? Howard the Duck. Howard the Turkey, more like. <laughs> Howard the Duck was the only film that I ever had um, residuals on. So if it had done well, I would have done well. Barry Norman over in England, who was a film reviewer, when Howard the Duck came out, he went, Howard the Duck, Howard the Turkey, more like. And everybody listened to him and it disappeared after one week at the cinema and nobody watched it. And it's the funniest thing because for years afterwards, people would pick it up on VHS and then it finally went on the DVD. And they said, um, they would always come up and apologize to me for having liked Howard the Duck. 
And I said, well, don't apologize to me. It's one of the films that I'm actually the most proud of because of how it was the hardest thing that I've ever done and also the thing that I, I got the most reward from because I didn't agree with everything that we did on it, but I was very proud. What I do is I take inanimate objects and I try to bring them alive. And I think that no matter what your complaints are about Howard, we did keep a believable character that you could suspend your disbelief on and keep him alive for every single shot in the movie. And that, as I said, we did that in camera. There was no, <laughs> there was no way to cheat anything or do it in post. So it was very difficult to do, and I'm very proud of what I achieved on it. Very nice. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, I was wondering, uh, what if, uh, the, uh, the industry going as far as like uh, uh, a lot of sci-fi movies that run, you know, TV, TV, uh, especially since they say it's going to be more Star Wars than the uh, the industry of like profiteering going down, and you see like it still being around with especially like Star Wars and, and the director's doing a combination of TV and practical uh, uh, effects. I'm waiting for the Messiah. <laughs> I think the reason they didn't put my behind-the-scenes uh, thing on from The Force Awakens was because I made the mistake of saying that I was waiting for the Messiah, and that was a director that understood animatronics and CG and knew how to marry the two together to get something better than either one on their own. And we haven't, we haven't gotten there yet with it. They, they tend to think they either have to do it animatronically or do it with CG, when in fact there's ways to combine the two together, which I've done more for TV shows than I've done on the movies yet, but there, there's a long way for it to go. Um, the reason I think we should do it is because Jim Henson had what he called the magic moment. And that's when you have a, a crew full of very talented people, you have all these beautiful sets, you have a script to do, got the cameraman, the lighting guys there, and in the effort to just trying to do the script, somebody will do something that'll spark the person next to them, and all of a sudden you'll end up filming something that was better than you started off to film in the first place. Now Jim would do... 25, 30, 40 takes waiting to get that magic moment and most of his films are an edit together sequence of these magic moments that he would go for and the problem I see the main problem with CG is that it's all done in post and you see the actors on set you know they're acting to a green ball up on a stick or whatever and they start trying to do something, they start being inspired, and more times than not, the director will come over and say, well, that was lovely, but you can't really do that because the person you asked that question to has already been drawn in the computer, and they've already answered the question this way, so we can't change anything now because we'd have to redo everything. So it ends up making things regimented, and you lose the drama, you lose the magic moment. And with the animatronics, because you're right there on set with them, you can feel the actors and you can respond to them and you can get these magic moments. So for all their, their downsides, I still think that the animatronics can give a much more dramatic performance.
this, so. this isn't necessarily pertaining to animatronics. Um, is uh, I know in The Force Awakens, rather than the old school, just the sticks for the lightsabers they used, you know, and then mm -hmm. added the lightsaber later. I don't know if you guys know this, but they actually made them like the effects lightsabers. So Kylo Ren's was red on set. Yes, they put the lightsaber over top later, but they just wanted to give them that sense of realism, that sense of being there. So rather than a Jedi and the Sith fighting with sticks, you know, they actually gave them colored blades so they could play, so they could like lose themselves in their imagination, right? Hmm. So I think that's definitely the, the, the way to go, the, the right ideal, right? So yeah. It was very and that, cool. that was what was so fun about working out it was because most of the stuff was there. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know, you could, uh, in between takes, you could run onto the Millennium Falcon if you wanted to. And, right, uh, right, all right. That, it, was, it was there. And did you? Um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Have a question, yeah? You said how was enough to do right? Yeah. What was your most frustrating moment? What did you learn from it? Good question. <laughs> the most frustrating. Hmm. Hmm. Could be Howard the Duck. <laughs> <laughs> One of the same, eh? <laughs> I, I got um, Howard the Duck had its 30th anniversary recently, and I did a uh, podcast interview. This guy was doing a whole Howard the Duck retrospective, and he was talking to all of us and with the internet and things being permanent now, you have to be very careful what you say. <laughs> I used to just tell the truth all the time and now I get really nervous about that. So we did all the interview and I said everything the way you're supposed to say it and then finally I said, actually if you, if you turn off the recorder, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things. <laughs> and he, he smiled and he said, Every single person that I've interviewed about this has said the same thing. They, they've all started off towing the company line and then say, well, actually, if you want to know the truth. <laughs> Podcasting can get a lot of fun stories that way. I recommend everybody starts a podcast. A Would you like, I, I, I will tell this one story. Okay. Robin Williams was supposed to do the voice for Howard the Duck. Really? Yeah. Wow. So I knew right from the start that I was only doing the guide track while I was performing the duck. And one day, Robin came on the set. And um, we were working off of monitors and around the back at the time. So I said, well, sit down and have a go at the puppet controls, because if you can puppeteer as well, I can go back to England and marry my pregnant fiance. She'd come to visit me at Christmas time, you see. So... <laughs> And he sat down at the controls, and he must have been watching me before he came over because he proceeded to do a voice for the duck that was very similar to the one that I had been doing. Well, the sound guy saw that Robin Williams was there, so he cranked up the volume on the floor mic, and his voice went out over the floor. Whereupon Willard, the director, screamed out, Rose, you bleepity bleep bleep bleep, how many times have I told you not to talk on that microphone when I'm out here directing? And the first AD ran over to him and said, That's not Tim Rose, that's Robin Williams. And quick as that, he goes, Robin, love what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so he turned to me and he said, um, Is that the way things are around here? And I said, Well, actually, he's in a pretty good mood today. <laughs> And he said, well, thank you very much. And he, he walked away and he kept on walking and he didn't actually do the movie. And 15 years later, I'm now doing a um, puppet called Balchit on a Saturday morning British kids TV program. 
and I get sent up to London to interview Robin Williams for Mrs. Doubtfire. So I walk into the room and I said, uh, Mr. Williams, I know you don't remember me, but we actually met on Howard the Duck. And he looked at me and went, Rose, you bleepity bleep bleep bleep. There's children in the room, so I can't. Uh, <laughs> How many times have I told you to be quiet? And I was amazed. This guy, that's 15 years later of uh, seven minutes that we spent together, you know, and he, he could remember the full detail of that time. They just had an, an amazing an amazing brain. So, how often do you get to talk to Robin Williams? I, I threw the script out that they'd given me for Mrs. Doubtfire, and I just said, Oh, Captain, my Captain, I've only got one question. Could you say, Good morning, Vietnam, just once for me? And he got a big smile on his face, and he said, Sound guys ready? And they all went, Yeah, like that, you know. He just rolled back and did a great big Good morning, Vietnam, and... Uh, I thought I was going back to work to get fired yet again, but they liked what we got on film, so I didn't get fired that day. I've been fired by a lot of people. <laughs> um, it must have been a pleasant surprise. You, uh, thank you. Do you have another question? Or, no, that's it. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, all right. We are doubling up. Let's do it. What did you learn from that frustrating? I imagine it was while you were getting yelled at. <laughs> yes, I learned discipline. <laughs> that you have to suffer for your art. <laughs> um, yeah, to, to not take things personally. <laughs> I, I was very, very sensitive as a young man, and I, I always took everything totally personally. And it's like, you know what? Sometimes it's not your fault. People are just like that. <laughs> so you have to let them be them, and you stay you, and don't let them mess you around. So. Good. Thanks very much, Dick. You're welcome. Uh, you saw Guardians of the Galaxy? I did, yes. And did it bring a smile to your face to see Howard the Duck return to the big screen? Yeah. <laughs> no, I was very happy to see that. I, um, when I first got taken over there to work on Howard, they had sent me ten of the comic books to introduce me to who Howard the Duck was. And I fell in love with the character. And then when I got there, I went but this doesn't look like Howard. Howard looks like this in the comic. And the director didn't think that a cartoon character would work in a live movie with people. And I felt that I could have made a duck that was much closer to the original because I thought our core audience were going to be the people who liked the comics, you know, and they were going to tell their friends and then they'd come see the movie. You would think. Yeah. But that was one of the things that I, I wasn't able to persuade and change. There comics, was a certain so. idea back then about when they did try to make comic movies and stuff that you could, you didn't want to do it like the comic. You wanted, yeah. you know, that, that wouldn't sell because it was a silly comic book. Now they're do everything they can to match that comic. As well, it was before Ninja Turtles. It was before Roger Rabbit. It was... Um, yeah. That's very early on to that sort of thing. And Howard, I mean, in those days, at that time animatronic characters tended to be something cute and fluffy that sat on the shelf or in the back of shot or something. Right, right. Howard was effectively the leading man of the movie. What, what amazed me about that was um, as we were having terrible time actually building the animatronics and getting something that would work and stay working for filming, the start date for the film never moved. It just stayed the same. And I thought... Well, if the leading man of the movie had been an actor, 
they wouldn't have ever set a start date until they had this man signed, sealed, and delivered on the bottom line. But because he was a puppet, they just sort of assumed that he would be there, and this whole big thing just kept trundling along, right. assuming that I was going to come up with the goods. Right, right. <laughs> and fortunately, well, so we did get there on the start date. So Excellent, excellent. So to wind things down, uh, I saw episode seven. Uh-huh. And I noticed that Akbar did, in fact, survive the events of the film. Uh-huh. May we perhaps see Admiral Akbar return for a couple more movies? No, I couldn't possibly say. No, <laughs> I had to ask. I knew what he was going to answer, but I had to ask because you know you got to ask. Um, we're all hoping to see Akbar, of course. And uh, on behalf of everybody, thank you for your years of incredible work that, you know, I, I was raised on it. Everything you've done, I was absolutely raised on. So, uh, that well, that was. <laughs> <laughs> everybody, please I like to say, I like to say, I, I, sure. I hit my midlife crisis. And I went, why didn't I listen? It, it's very funny, the... Um, when I read things that people write about on the internet, they all assume that we're very rich people and successful, and that isn't the reality of working in the film business at all. There's three people who are rich, and the rest of us are still worrying about our pensions. And so I thought, why hadn't I listened to my mother and become an architect like she wanted me to, instead of running off and playing with dolls, you know? And it was really doing the conventions and realizing that the stuff that we did, the, the number of people that it's touched, it's, it's mind-blowing. <laughs> it must be. It must be. And, uh, you know, I, I may not be rich money-wise, but I'm very rich in what I've been able to share with people. Right. And continue to share. I mean, you know, Hopefully. I hope I haven't done my best thing yet, actually. I'm yeah, you, you never know. <laughs> I'm, I'm right? waiting for that one around the corner to right. show what I've learned in 40 years, you know. So. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. Uh, everybody, big round of applause for Mr. Tim <laughs>